First Peter chapter 2, and I want to read to your hearing just two verses, verses 9 and 10, and the title of the message is, What is the Church? First Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 9, hear now the word of the true and living God. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy people, a a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have read and we have heard your word. Father, we thank you for how you have met with us already here in this service. We've needed that. I've needed that. And now as we come to the preaching of your holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word, we pray that you would get me out of the way. Speak to your people this day. Let your word go forth. May it go forth and do what you accomplish it to do. May it convict those that need convicting. May it encourage those that need to be encouraged. May it save those that need to be saved. May it draw us all to a closer walk with the Master. All these things we ask and pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Last week we began a new series of messages on the importance of the church. We talked about the importance of the weekly gathering for corporate worship from Hebrews chapter 10. We praise the Lord for the innovations and the inventions of man. Uh, God created mankind in his image. God is the creator and the builder of all things. God in creating man in his image designed man to be builders and creators. And civilization has greatly benefited from those inventions. And you think about specifically the camera, the television, the internet are all tremendous resources when they are used properly. However, they are not how the Lord desires for his church to meet and worship him. Over and over, you have heard me say, God created you and I to worship him. The Father sent Christ to be that propitiation, to be that substitute on our behalf, to die to save us from our sins. And the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within us to seal us for us to worship Him. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship touches every aspect of our lives. You hear people often say, you know, I can worship anywhere. I can worship at home. I can even worship on my job. You know, and you're right. You you are absolutely right about that. You can and you should. However, God did not save your soul to be a Lone Ranger Christian. You will not find any such in the Bible. God has left a schematic, a blueprint for us in the Bible for how his church is to be structured. He does not leave us to wander on our own. He established the structure of the New Testament church so that every believer is yoked up to a God-honoring, Bible-believing local church under the authority of the leadership there of pastors and elders. Again, a true Christian should either be a member of a good Bible-believing church, and in that church, serving the Lord, or they should be in search of a good Bible-believing church that they can serve in. And God commands that His church is to gather together and to worship Him. I say it again. Worship is the most important thing that you and I will do this week. 
It is the most important act that we do. The corporate gathering for worship of the triune God in spirit and in truth is more important than work, more important than school, more important than sports, hobbies, hanging out with friends, or whatever. It is more important than anything or anyone else that we can think of. Gathering for worship should be our excuse for missing other events and not other events be our excuse for missing worship. If you study the Old Testament and you see when the Israelites were brought out of the Egyptian bondage and they were wandering around in the wilderness, God instructed them to build the tabernacle which housed the Ark of the Covenant which held the Ten Commandments. That tabernacle was the place where God would meet with them and receive their ceremonial sacrifices. God commanded that that tabernacle be where? In the center of the camp. This was to signify that God was the center of their lives. To be, he was to be the center of their lives. And the worship of God was to be at the center of their lives. Folks, the Lord is to be the center of our lives. He is to be the center. Not our jobs, he gave us the jobs. Not our kids, he gave us the kids. Not our hobbies, not our feelings. The Lord is to be at the center of our lives. And what he desires and what he commands and what pleases him should be at the center of our lives. So if God has saved us and commands us to worship Him, then worship should be supreme above all else. Now, on the flip side of that coin, as corporate worship is the most important thing that we do, there are some people that think what we do today is all that is required of them in their Christian life. I went on a um, uh, hike. Riley and I went on a hike with another church's uh, men's group yesterday, and we up into the Blue Ridge Parkway. And I was talking with the guy that I was riding with, and he and I said the same thing. Some people think that hour, hour and a half that they give on Sunday mornings is it. It's all I got to do. It's all that's required of me. Done. I'm good for the rest of the week. That line of thinking is wrong. 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 As I said last week, and we'll look at it in greater detail in a maybe next week, maybe a week after, each born-again child of God has been given at least one gift by the Lord that He wants us to use to be in service for His kingdom. Think about this question. Why do local churches die? Because pe the people quit serving. Local churches die because the people stop serving. These are all things that we're going to consider throughout this series. Yet for today, we're going to start at ground zero. Maybe I should have preached this last week, but it is what it is. We're going to start at ground zero, attempting to answer the question that's the title of the message. What is the church? What is the church? The church is suffering from an identity crisis. Uh, there are, if you ask an, uh, any number of people what, the, what, what is the church, You'll receive any number of different answers. Some people think that the church is a building. So for them, success in ministry is filling the building and enlarging the building. Going to church is going to the building. Some believe that the church is a fortress, a place to retreat and isolate from the world, as opposed to a place to be thrust from into the world. Some believe that a church is a museum, that showcases the past. You see that in a lot more, more over in European countries, some in 
our colonial areas uh, where um, they have churches that, uh, like the uh, church that Jonathan Edwards was pastored over. I don't believe they have worship services in there anymore. I'm sure if you uh, spent big money, you could probably have a wedding in there. But it's more of a museum now. Some believe the church is a theater, a place where productions are staged, and the goal is to entertain people. Listen to this. I don't know who said it, but I've taken it and run with it because it's true. What you win them with is what you win them to. If you win them with the nightclub atmosphere, with the light show and the music and the and music that is more manward rather than Godward, with brief sermonettes about that are about as spiritually deep as a mud puddle, and it's all emotion-based. Everything you hear is about your feelings, your emotions, your wants, your desires, your dreams, and God is just here to facilitate all of it on a silver platter. Some people think that's what the church is. Some people think that the church is a social hub. It's just a place for people to meet and gather and socialize, connect, make business connections, hang out and just talk. How we define the church is how we will determine what the mission of the church is to be. Let me say that again. How we define the church is how we will determine what the mission of the church is to be. Because if if we rightly define what the church is, then you will rightly determine what the church is to be and what the church will do. Here we have for us in 2 Peter a text, a passage that defines for us clearly just what the church is. The Lord in this text lays it out clear for us what the church is to be and what the church is to do. And if we grasp this passage, we will understand the true identity of the church and the true mission of the church. According to this text, the church is not a building. It's not. It's not a building. It's never been a building. It's never been about a building. The church is a people. We heard this all too well throughout 2020, right? We were told the church is is not a building, but rather a people. This was the mantra that was repeated to us over and over and over to persuade us not to meet in buildings. Well, the church, it's right. The, the, The church is not a building. It is a people. But you know where a good place for us to meet and worship together? In a building, (laughs) in a building. So the church is a people, a people chosen by God, a people who have been called by God out of darkness into his light, a people who have been commissioned by God and have been thrown, thrust into his work upon the earth. The church is a saved people, a sanctified people, a justified people, all done by the work and grace and mercy of the triune God. So we are looking at a text that is going to, that will pour concrete into our understanding of what the church is and what the church is to be. Our outline this morning has three points. Three points, all of them are alliterated, all of them begin with a D, the description, the duty, and the destination. Point number one, we see in the first part of verse nine, the description. The description. But look what it says. It says, but you are. Or if you in the KJV, it says, but ye are, but you are. The word but stands in stark contrast to what has been said prior to the but in verses seven and eight. In verse seven, he speaks, Paul speaks to, of those that and their disbelief. 
They are those to whom Christ has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And in verse 8, he identifies them as stumbling because they are disobedient to the word. The description of the church is to stand in stark contrast to unbelievers. To the world, Christ is a stumbling block. He is a, a, a stone of stumbling. He is the, a, a point of rage for some. To get down to it, the lost world system hates Christ. People that are lost in their sin, in their sin they hate Christ. The Bible tells us the preaching of the gospel is what? It is foolishness to the lost and dying world. It is foolishness and a point of hatred for the world. And then in verse 9, Peter says, but you are. He is emphatically pointing a finger to each of us who are in Christ, each of us that is a true believer, and, and he is affirming who we are. But you are, but you are, you believers, you Christians. He uses this word you or ye over and over to drive the point home. He defines the, the you for us in back over in chapter one. Look what it says in verse 23. It says, but being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And down in verse 25, but the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto who? You. You. And, 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 and he goes on in, 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 in uh, beginning of chapter 2. It says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye, or you, may grow thereby. If so, uh, if so be you have tasted the, that the Lord is gracious. The church is the you. The church is not an inanimate object. The church is the you. The church is a people. The you are the true saved believers. The believers who are the living stones who have been brought together by the sovereign architect and builder, Jesus Christ. And Peter goes on he, to you, give us a four-fold description which alludes of Israel in the Old Testament and applies them to the church. This speaks to the unity of uh, the people of God, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Look what he says. But you are a chosen generation. You are a chosen generation, a chosen race, a chosen family, a chosen nation. This is a direct quote from the Old Testament about Israel and as being a people who were selected by God to be his people. Amos chapter 3 verse 2 says, You only have I known among all the families or all the nations of the earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6, the Lord says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his affection on you nor chose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But listen to this. Why? Why did he choose? Because the Lord loved you. The Lord chose to love Israel out of all the other nations, not because they merited it, not because they had any redeemable attributes. In fact, all they had was sin. God, by his sovereign grace, chose to love Israel simply because he chose to. But Peter now applies this phrase to the church. 
He says it, and he says it that it is the very same principle to the church. We are the chosen generation, the chosen race, the chosen family, the chosen nation to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the chosen generation that the Lord has set his heart upon, not because we were the biggest, not because we were the strongest or the smartest, or because we brought the most to the table. You, the only thing that we brought, that we bring to the table is sin, but simply because he chose to love us in spite of us. He chose to love us in spite of us. Peter begins this description of the you, <coughs> excuse me, of the church, of the believers in chapter one, verse one, where look what he says, look what he says, where he describes the church. He says, Peter, <coughs> He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, look what he says, to the strangers, to the strangers, meaning exiles, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithia. The redeemed of God are the strangers in the world. We are to be in the world, but not of it. We are called to be strangers in the, in, in the world, and we are strangers in this world. Have you ever... Have you ever just known, you know, I don't fit in with anything that's going on in this day and time. Nothing that is going on makes sense to my mind at all. And it doesn't make sense, period. But we seem to be the only ones that can figure it out, right? Because we're strangers here. We're aliens. We're pilgrims. We're exiles. The redeemed of God are strangers in this world. And we will be strangers as long as we are upon this earth until the Lord calls us home. And the strangers to whom this letter were written were scattered. That means that they were under persecution. Under persecution by Roman Emperor Nero. And that's why they were scattered to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To the uttermost parts of the earth. They were scattered. They were strangers. They were outcasts of the, earth, uh, of the world. And the next word we see was an enormous encouragement to a people who were under persecution. And it should be an enormous encouragement to us now. And it begins, it's the first word in verse 2, and it's that word, elect. That means chosen of God. While the early church was being utterly rejected by the world, Peter is telling them, you have been chosen by God. Folks, that is a love that goes back to the very foundation of the world. If you are in Christ, before the world was created, God chose to love you. To look at the church with human eyes, the church has always been made up with the leftovers of society. The church has been made up by the outcasts of society. And in the first century, it was made up of those who could not quite distinguish themselves in Caesar's house. They couldn't get along in the Roman Empire. They didn't fit in. They could not rise to success in the marketplace. And Peter seeks to encourage them by letting them know that they were the ones that God had pursued from all eternity past. And it will be through the ch this chosen generation that God will accomplish his mission upon the earth. Let me read another passage to you in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 
3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according as He hath chosen us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to what? The good pleasure of His will. To, to the praise and the glory of His grace, wherein He hath what? Made us accepted in the Beloved. And over in verse 11, it says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works out all things, all things, all things, after the counsel of His own will. I'm going to read one more. One more. It's called the golden chain of redemption found in Romans chapter 8. This is one that you really ought to, ought to have him get burned into your, into, your, into your mind because it is so encouraging. It is such a blessing. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. We all know this one. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Here's where the chain begins. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestine them, he also called. And whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Each and every step of the way is nothing but the grace of God. The unmerited mercy and grace of God. And I'm just going to keep reading because it's such a blessing. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not uh, with him also freely give us all things? We should be the most fearless people walking on this earth. We should be walking around like we're bulletproof. Because we ain't leaving from here until he's ready for us because he has worked out every bit of our lives and brought us to the point to where he would bring us into uh, being arrested by his law and showing us his holiness and his love through the cross. And he has had that plan since before the foundation of the world. It is such an encouraging blessing. Verse 33 says, Who sh what shall we... Um, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Is It is God that justifies. In verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are all accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more, not less, more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, God chose to love us in spite of us 
God chose to love us and that does not mean that He looked down the, four, the, the corridors of time to see who would and wouldn't believe on Him. God does not obtain knowledge. He gives knowledge. And if God has to learn anything, then He would cease to be God. God foreordained from the foundation of the earth that over time we would enter into a saving relationship with Him. John chapter 15, verse 16, you, these are the words of Jesus. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would bear fruit. First John chapter 4, verse 10 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be that great big word like mayonnaise, propitiation. To be that substitute for our sins. This is who the church is. This is the you that Peter is talking to. The church has been formed from eternity past. So when you come in here, when you come into this place on the Lord's day or any other time, like you did this morning, when you come in here to worship and you shake hands and you hug your brothers and sisters uh, in Christ, and when you do the same right before you leave, listen to this, you are interacting with some very special people to God. People whom God intentionally chose to be His people from the foundation of the world. There is not a one of us in this church that any of us could afford to overlook neglect, or walk away from. Every one of us has a purpose. Every one of us has something to offer. God has placed it within us. This, is, this truth should breed humility within our hearts. This should breed humility within our hearts. If we are in Christ, God has chosen to love us from the foundation of the world. Well, then here's the question. How do you know that if you're in Christ? Here's, a, here's how you know. Do you love the Lord? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you believe what this book says about him? And does that bring about a love for him? Do you hate sin? More specifically, do you hate your sin? Do you strive to not sin? Not do you fall, do you strive not to fall? Do you desire to be holy? We'll talk about that in a minute. Do you desire for holiness? And then here's a big one. Do you love the church? Do you love his people? If you can put a check mark beside those boxes, then that proves that Jesus Christ has done a work in your heart and it is a work that he, has, that he chose to do in you from the foundation of the world. And you are very precious to him. You are very precious to him. Therefore, as the text says uh, here also in Peter, he should be precious to you. So a chosen generation, the next phrase that he uses is a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. This, is, this second phrase is, um, corresponds... Uh, to the Old Testament priesthood, right? The Lord Jesus is for us both king and priest. We see that in Hebrews 7. In the Old Testament, no king in Israel could serve as priest. And the only one that tried, 2 Chronicles 26 tells us, he was judged by God. In the Old Testament, God's people had a priesthood. The Levites handled the duties in the tabernacle and later the temple. 
a high priest would serve over the sacrifices in the temple at Passover and Day of Atonement and other times. If you read Leviticus, you will see the preparation that the high priest had to go through and the things that he had to wear and do before he would ever even think about entering the temple. He had to be specially consecrated so that he would be clean, clean enough to enter into the Holy of Holies. And once he entered, he would sprinkle that blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat, which was the place on the Ark of the Covenant between those golden cherubim. And the high priest could only enter in there once. And now, because of the bloodshed sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, as a better, as the best sacrifice, now God's people are a priesthood of believers. Now I can enter the throne room of grace, and I can stay there. I can walk in there because of the blood of Jesus, and I can hang out. I can go there like Ann was talking about, and I can get on my knees, and I can cry out to God. I can cry out to Christ. I can pour my heart out to Him, and I don't have to go through a priest. I don't have to go through some other mediator. The Bible tells us there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And it is because of Him that now we are, we don't have a priesthood, we are the priesthood. We are the priesthood of believers. The next phrase that he uses is a holy nation. A holy nation. You are a chosen generation, a holy priesthood, a, a, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. We have been set apart to belong exclusively to God. Our citizenship is in heaven, so we obey heaven's laws and seek to please heaven's Lord. Look what it says in chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. It says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts of your ignorance. The old way is to die. He who is in Christ is a new creature. All things pass away. Old things pass away. All things become new. That old life, the old lust, done away with. Verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye what? Holy, for I am holy. The church is called to be different from the world. Way different. Starkly different. We are called to be holy. Holiness is most definitely different from the world. The sin and depravity of the world gets worse with each passing day. And on our best day, you and I are nothing but sinners that have been saved by the grace of God. We are not better. We are just better off. And we want them to be better off as well. However, we're not to live as the world does. We are to exemplify. We, 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 are to, we are to show off the Savior in the way we live. And the Lord Jesus tells us, John 14, 15, He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then John goes on to expound upon that in 1 John 5, 3. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous or burdensome. God does not expect those that He foreknew, predestined, called, justified, as we read in Romans 8. He, he does not ex, you know, expect us to obey Him and strive for holiness only when we feel like it. Or when it's convenient. Or only when someone you think is important is watching. Or when you think that it's a benefit to you. Listen to this. Listen to this. God does not make exceptions 
for our disobedience. Sin is sin no matter how you slice it. Two sins don't make a lesser sin. Case in point, look at what time of year we're in. Tax, tax time, right? Taxation is theft. Income taxation is theft. Personal property taxes are theft. But just because the state and federal government steal from you does not permit you to commit tax fraud. If you put something on documentation that is incorrect and you know it is, and you know that it is, that's a lie, and God will not bless that. God does not make exceptions for sin. He commands his people to be holy, set apart, different from the world. We see this when we when it comes to relationships as well. It boggles my mind. The people in this day that proclaim to know the goodness and the grace and the salvation of Jesus Christ, yet live in stark contrast to the word of God. Pay no mind to it. They cherry pick, pick and choose what they like. They love what what, what it says in Jeremiah by the plans that I have before you and all this stuff. In Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. But what about be holy? What about being a holy people set apart from sin? Does not Christ deserve more? And we see that in our our relationships. You know, marriage is just not even thought of anymore. People live together or shack up, as we call it here in the South. That does not count. There's no exception to what God has required of men and women to be united under the covenant bonds of marriage. The Commonwealth of Virginia does not honor common law marriages, and more importantly, neither does the Commonwealth of Heaven. Neither does the Commonwealth of God Almighty. No matter what reasons or excuses that are contrived, it does not matter. It does not matter if one party has a bad home life or has trouble standing on their feet, and we just need to give them a, a place to live. No, sin is never an option. It does not matter how much you supposedly love each other. Because if you supposedly uh, both love Christ, he's to be first and foremost above all else and above all others. And people obviously don't love one another uh, enough to enter into that covenant with the two of them and the Lord. And I, I often wonder, could it be because maybe they're just silently waiting to better deal the other one, keeping their options open? And what's sad what is heartbreakingly sad is with those that make excuse that, that, that they have to that, uh, stay in the way their relationship is because they'll lose benefits. They don't trust God enough to provide for them the way the state does. God has chosen His people to be set apart for Himself holy, and that is not to be a holy people And also, that's not to people who are to enter into romantic relationships with unbelievers. No, 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 no. You don't understand. I can change them. They will pull you down. You will not pull them up. It's biblical. The people that God has saved for himself are to be as different from the unbelieving, unsaved world as day is to night. It should be that drastic of a difference. God is holy and he calls his people to be holy as well. Then he says the next phrase, a peculiar people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. This means meaning God's own special people. Peter continues to build upon the truth that the church is chosen of God, saved by God, chosen and saved by God and for God. 
The people is to be different from the rest of humanity. The church has been bought by God through the blood of Christ. He snatched us in eternity past from the grass of the evil one, and he did so for us to be a people for him, to be a people for him. And there's no greater group for one to be a part of than the peculiar people that is the church of the Lord Jesus. Point number two, we see in the second part of verse nine, the duty. We see the duty. The first part of verse nine defines for us who we are. The second part of verse nine defines what we do. Look what it says. A holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the reason for the existence of the church. This is the reason for the existence of the church to proclaim God, to make known God, to tell others about Christ, to be in the business of conversion, to be in the business of telling people the good news of the gospel so that God may be pleased to reveal their sin to them and show them grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. The church is to make known how marvelous, how wonderful, how awesome, how powerful, how sovereign, how loving, kind, and good our Lord is. What we did before prayer time, that is what God expects of us, to be bursting at the seams, showing forth the praises of him, telling of how wonderful, loving, and good our Lord, Master, and God is. We're to proclaim that in every facet of our lives. We're to make it known to everyone that we come in contact with. The church is to declare the greatness of our God. Look what it says. It says you were chosen, you were called, you were elected, you were, you were washed, you were saved. Not so that you will whisper, but that you may shout. So that you may show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God didn't save us to whisper. He saved us to shout. You were chosen, made part of the royal priesthood, set apart for God so that you would shout from the rooftops about the greatness and the goodness of the Lord. We were created to worship. We were saved to worship and to proclaim God's goodness. Listen, we were saved to serve, not saved to sit. We were saved to serve, not saved to sit. To proclaim means to tell out, to advertise to all who are around. It captures the idea of opening the mouth and lifting the voice, telling of the excellencies of Jesus. This is like Paul saying, we preach Christ and Him crucified. Where it says the excellencies, it means that we are to tell of the attributes, the glories of Christ, the greatness of Christ, the work of Christ, the perfection of Christ, and the salvation of Christ. We proclaim Him. He is the point of our fellowship, and He is the focus of our mission. Because the world is in dark, because the world is in the dark, people do not know the excellencies of Christ. But where should they see Him? In us. They should see them in our lives. Our lives should radiate the marvelous light into which God has graciously called us. Point number three. We see it in verse 10. And we're also going to turn back over one more time and look in chapter 1, verse 4, but don't turn yet. It says, Peter uses a back and forth flow. Look what it says, verse 10. Which were in times past, were not a people, but now 
are, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. There's this back and forth flow to bring to mind where we have come from, what we have been brought to. It says we were once not a people. We were once not a people at all. We were rebels in our sin. But now because of God's sovereign grace and his grace alone, we are now not just a people, but his people. We were once without mercy. Once we were walking in the darkness of our sin and we gave in to every lustful desire that we had without thinking. The wrath of God abided upon us and we were deserving of hell and God would have been justified in sending us there. But God. But God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great pastor from the past, said, Thank God for the buts in the Bible. But God, who is rich in mercy, showed us mercy. God, who is rich in mercy, bestowed mercy upon our undeserving souls, and we have obtained mercy not on our own merit, not because we deserve it, not because we might earn it later, but by the blood and the, by the merits, by the blood of Jesus. God did that out of his own gracious volition so that we would tell the world how wonderful he is and that he would be pleased to use our efforts to open the eyes of more of his elect redeemed people. He chose to save us and to place us into his service. And while we do suffer at times upon the earth, we were reminded, hey, our past does not define us. Look what it says. Look, 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 look. Think back to what I said a couple of weeks ago when, when I was preaching on biblical sexuality and biblical marriage. First Corinthians chapter six is in verse 11 when it says, and such were, such were. Look what it says in verse 10, which in time past were not in the past were not a people of God. You didn't used to be the people of God, but praise God because of the blood of Jesus are now, are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now through Jesus have obtained mercy. Our past does not define us. Our past does not enslave us. We belong to God now in the present and in the future. Now flip over to chapter one, verse four. Look what it says to an inheritance. This is speaking about the future to an inheritance that is incorruptible. And undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Reserved in heaven for you. The you is his church. This is the identity and the mission of the church. It is a group of people who were lost in darkness and called by God through Jesus Christ to come out of that darkness and proclaim his excellencies to the end of the earth. This is who we are. This is what we are to be doing. And what a privilege it is to be a part of his church, to be a part of Christ's church, to be chosen, given access, set apart from him, to accomplish his mission and then go on to spend an eternity with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the promises and the guarantees that it contained. We thank you, Lord, for your grace.
your grace, your mercy that you showed upon us. We'll never be able to repay you for it. All of eternity will never be long enough to thank you for it, to praise you for it. Lord, help us in this day to do that, be obedient and show forth the praises of you who have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light that we might be used of you to call others out of darkness into your marvelous light. Thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.